to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Matthew chapter 18, uh, we're continuing our study in the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, today, we're going to deal with a subject matter that, that you guys are all, all of us in this room are experts in. It's the subject matter of sin. Are we not experts in that subject matter this morning? We are. We are. We're, we're experts in it. You know, sin is something that we have extensive experience in, both as executor and recipient. And so it won't be super hard to relate to the Scripture this morning, for sure. Sin is something that uh, will always exist in this world, as long as we are here, until we are in glory, until Jesus comes back. And, you know, eventually God will just take the earth and the heavens and He will destroy them, eventually. But until that time, there will always be sin that will exist here. And, and so then it becomes incredibly important that you and I know how to deal with sin. Not necessarily personal sin. We, we, we know the Bible says a lot about how to deal with personal sin. But, but specifically today, how to deal with a brother's sin. When a brother has sinned against you, how you deal with that subject matter and that's what Jesus wants to speak to us about this morning. I'm calling this message Revealing a Fault. Revealing a Fault. And Jesus will show us how to reveal the fault of a brother. So stand, me if you, stand with me if you would, please. And we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 18. I want to begin in verse 1 to get context because we've, we've been out. Uh, we haven't been in the, um, this for uh, several weeks. And um, I don't want to just pop into verse 15. I want us to get a good idea of what Jesus is saying here because this is all in the same breath that he's speaking to his disciples here. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes." And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go to the search of the one that went astray? If he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In our text for this morning, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him uh, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we approach a subject matter that is all too familiar to all of us, Lord, would you come and speak to us, Lord? Would you help us to not just be hearers of your word this morning, but to be doers? God, that we would hear specifically what your spirit would say to us this morning individually about this matter of showing a brother his fault. We pray that you would just come now, get me out of the way, Lord, speak directly into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is spending some time teaching his disciples how to live life together, literally how to build this community of believers and what it should look like. First, he teaches them how to get into it, how to, how to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he, and he does that by illustration. He draws a, a, a child to himself. And he brings it in the midst of his disciples as they're sitting there pondering amongst themselves which one would be the greatest of them. Jesus says, let me explain how you, how, how you establish community of, of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. First and foremost, you must become like a child. That's how you enter into this community that he is building. He says you must become like a child. He's speaking about the, the, the belief, about the faith, about the trust of a child and, and, and the, the attitude in which the child would come in humility. While he's speaking there, this child is sitting there as an illustration to his disciples and he's saying you must become like this little one must become like a child. You must believe like a child believes. You must not doubt like an, adult, like an adult would doubt, but you must simply take God at his word. It's the only way to become a child of God. As we talked about back then, not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone born into this world is a child of God. It requires adoption to become a child of God. And we talked about that. You can go back a few weeks and listen to the sermon, but if you're going to become a child of God, then you have to be adopted into his family. You're not born into it. No one's born into that. Jesus is, becomes the gate for us. He's the adoption agency. And we come to Jesus and Jesus places us in the family of God. He's the one that establishes that adoption for us. And when that happens, you are now in, in the sheepfold of God. You become a child of God. There is great value placed upon your life. That's what, he, that's what Jesus began to tell us there in the first part of Matthew chapter 18. He said, God so values you that those people that would bless you, man, they're going to be blessed because you're doing it, whatever you do to, the, to a child of God, you're doing to the Lord. But the reverse is also true. Whoever causes a little one to sin, oh man, beware, be careful, he says, because you're messing with my kids. When you mess with the father's child, you're messing with the father, are you not? Let me tell you something. It's easy for us to gain the understanding of that when we look at somebody's father and they could go, 
I could take him, so you're going to mess with the son. But when you look at the father, say you walk up to Dwayne Johnson, the rock, his biceps are bigger than most men's thighs, and you, and, and you see his son there, you might have a little different attitude towards him. You might say, oh man, he's, I'm taking orders from you. What do you want me to do? I know your dad. You see, it's some, he's a man. We're talking about God here. And he says it would be better for you to tie a, a 400-pound rock around your neck and just dump yourself over the side of a ship and drown than to face me. I think that should convict us about how we treat one another in the body of Christ. And I'm not just talking about this individual local body, but I'm talking about the wide distributed body of Christ and beyond denominations and all that stuff. How we treat each other matters to our Father, as Jesus would speak to us about that. He's warning us that we have to be careful about how we treat each other, particularly he moves into this place where Christians really like to get, really like to ridicule each other when one goes astray. Well, was he a Christian? I'm not sure. You know, we don't know. Let's ridicule the, the brother that's gone astray and not welcome them back in. Boy, I don't know. You're going to have to earn your way back. Is that the way the Lord is to us? No, it's not. It's not the way the Lord is. In fact, Jesus, get, you know, Jesus tells us this because it's a problem. Jesus tells us the way that we're supposed to treat that one because it's an issue. He sees the heart of man. He understands how we are. We're very conditional, and yet he is not. And if we're going to represent him well, then we need to become like him, which is unconditional, not based on the response of one, but based on who he is. And as he works through us, Jesus says, this child of mine has so much value, so much value that, that the shepherd would leave the 99 to go after the one that he would put himself in danger to go out on a mission to find the one that's gone astray. He wouldn't stay in that comfortable place, you know, where all the rest of the sheep are, but he would, he would leave them and go and find that one. And then check this out. If he finds him, conditional, by the way, that's a conditional promise. If he finds him, that is, if the one wants to be found, if the one wants to be found, Jesus will find them. But if he does find them, then what does he do? He rejoices. He rejoices over the one that had been astray and the one that has come back to the sheepfold of God. That's the value that you have in, you know, in, in heaven and amongst your Savior and the Father. You have great value. And if you feel this morning that you don't have much value, Jesus says something different. The deception of the enemy says we have no value. You're of no value. And Jesus says you're worth dying for. He says he places great value upon you so much so that he would go and he would find the one that has gone astray. And then he ends this parable here of the lost sheep with some very strong words regarding God's will for the redeemed. He says, look at, uh, look at verse 14 with me. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, as I explained a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is speaking about the saved in this parable, not the lost. We'll get to the lost in, the, in, in Luke chapter 15, but he's speaking specifically about the saved here. And so uh, the perishing that he's talking about is not an eternal perishing. That's not what he's speaking about. 
that word perish literally means to experience an, a wound or, or experience some sort of destruction. And Jesus is speaking about an earthly destruction, an earthly perishing for the one who's gone astray. First John tells us there is sin that leads to death. When you're dabbling in sin, you're dabbling with destruction. There is wounds that will come, no doubt, and the Lord will allow those wounds. And He will allow that destruction. Should you choose to, to go down that path, He will allow you to do that, and then you will reap the benefit, you will reap the repercussions of those decisions. And so He says, it's not His will that you would perish. It's not His will that you would experience those things. Now, for those who are outside a relationship with God, of course, the perishing means something different. It means eternal perishing. It means to experience the full weight of the law, to experience the wrath of God eternally in the lake of fire, as it were written here. And yet many will choose to go that route. Many will choose to, to reject Jesus Christ and to choose that place of perishing. It's a real place. Hell is a real place. And unfortunately, many, many will choose to go there. Yet for the, for the Christian, the one who would desire to stay in their sin, the one that would desire to stay in that state of being astray, there is an earthly perishing that will happen, a wounding or some type of destruction. It's a promise, Jesus said. It's not if, but when. God will... Um, God's will concerning his children is that we would not experience that perishing. It's insane that a Christian would choose to perish. Jesus said, I came to give you life and that more abundantly, and yet uh, there are many that choose to perish, to choose to be wounded, to experience the destruction that speaks of the power of sin in our lives, guys. How powerful the draw of sin is, how deceptive it is. That it would cause us, it would draw us, it would entice us to be drawn away from the protection of our shepherd, from the safety of our shepherd, from the community of the sheepfold to engage in something that's meant to wound and destroy us. Don't get me wrong, sin is fun for a season, we know this. But understand, the fruit of sin is always the same. It doesn't change, it disguises itself, but but the end result is always the same, destruction, death. It's always the same. Sin destroys lives, even the lives of the redeemed. That's why we should have a strong disdain for sin, not only because God hates sin, but because of the effects that it has on our lives. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It can do massive damage in your life. Just a little compromise. Just a little bit. So we need to be vigilant with sin. That's what Jesus now begins to tell his church as it relates to one another. That we would be vigilant with sin that occurs between us. That we would deal with it in a, in a way that, that, that would bring glory to him and hopefully restoration to the relationship. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is to restore, not to destroy. The heart of the enemy is to, to kill, steal, and destroy. The heart of God is to, to lift up, to bring life, to, to build up, to bring you back into relationship, to restore you. 
That's his desire for you. And, and Jesus now begins to speak to his church about how to do that. We obviously have individual responsibility regarding the sin of our hearts. He just said that, uh, you know, a little bit above in chapter 18. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Not literally, but, you know, do get radical with your sin. But now he moves into corporate setting in verses 15 through 20. And um, he declares that not only do we have responsibility to deal with our sin individually, but corporately we're, we're, we're called to reveal the fault of a sinning brother or sister. Now that's tough, agreed? That's a difficult thing to do. It's not easy to confront somebody about their sin, and yet it is incredibly necessary to do it. Sin will destroy their life. It's just a matter of time. And if we truly love our brother and sister, then you know, we're going to be willing to risk our relationship with our brother and sister to deal with the issue at hand, to show them their fault. Now, by show of hands, how many of you guys have ever confronted somebody in sin before? You ever done that before? Anybody ever done that? Is that fun? Did you have fun doing it? One guy's in there going, yeah, it was awesome. Well, hey, you know, we'll, we'll have a deliverance service that for you after the service. There's something wrong with that. No, you know what? It's not fun to do. In fact, it, it is in, incredibly, incredibly nerve-wracking. It's incredibly difficult for us to, to step into that place of confrontation. Some of us are, are you know, feel like we're kind of natural at it. And, and if that's the case, you probably aren't letting the Holy Spirit work through you. <laughs> you might want to step back a little bit and allow the Lord to go through because, you know, it's not called to, it's not something that um, it should be easy for us to do. Something that as we pray through, as the Lord gives us a peace in, as, as we go to that brother in the right spirit, which is really, really important. That's really more so important than anything is coming in the right spirit. That we would go and show our brother and our sister their faults. If you enjoy that, then, then, you're, then maybe you're getting revenge. And revenge doesn't belong to us, does it? No, no. It belongs to the Lord. We don't get revenge. Our heart should be to cause that brother or sister that's disconnected, that's been astray, that's gone out into the world and is being devoured or has sinned against us in some way that we would reconcile with that brother because it won't only destroy them, it may destroy you. Some of you guys maybe here this morning are holding on to some bitterness about something somebody's done in your life and it's destroying you and it's eating you alive and it's killing you from the inside. Oh, they don't have any control over me, really? <laughs> Let it go then. If that's the case, if they don't have any control over you, then why are you so worked up about it? Because they have control over you. It's called deal with the sin. Deal with it. And then let it go. Isn't that the way the Lord does? I don't think the Lord finds pleasure in dealing with our sin. But it's necessary and he will do it. And when it's done, it's over. He casts our sin as far as these is from the west. He remembers it no more. That's the example we have. When we have that reconciliation with our brother, that we would remember it no more. That we would just let it go. Now, that's a gift of the Spirit. And that's God that will help you to do that when you follow the steps that he's calling you to take as it relates to that. It's difficult to do, but how important it is because it helps produce a healthy Christian and a healthy body. 
helps produce a healthy Christian and a healthy body. When, when the people of God hold each other accountable, it produces a healthy and loving body of believers. But when sin is left undealt with, within the church, it will eventually destroy it. We've seen that. Maybe you've been a part of that. Where you've seen a, a church be destroyed from the inside because of some contention that wasn't dealt with and then it just imploded. We call them church splits. God calls them sin. God calls them sin. And we are called to deal with that so it doesn't happen. That's called victory in the enemy's um, court when that happens. I was just talking to Brother Savannah yesterday about this issue of how the church is so divided, how the enemy is just, um, you know, routed many, many churches and created so much confusion and so much destruction and disunity in the body of Christ. A lot of it has to do with our theology. But a lot of it has to do with people not wanting to deal with sin, man. I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just leave that church, go somewhere else. Maybe I'll take a few people with me, by the way. It happens. We need to deal with sin. Jesus is saying that from the onset of the church being started, he says, listen, when your brother sins against you, deal with it. And get radical if you have to. There's a process he talks to us about here. Uh, Paul declares to us, as I mentioned before in 1 Corinthians 5, that just a little sin leavens the whole lump, and sin will spread throughout the body. That's why we deal with it. Because if we let, let, leave it un, undealt with, then it's going to spread, and the next thing you know, it's going to affect many more people in the body of Christ. That's why he wants us to deal with that. Listen, God wants, number one, the sinner to know that he knows what's going on. He knows what's up, but also he... He, that he has a desire for that sinner to come and repent and be, uh, be restored to fellowship. That's God's heart regarding the sinner for restoration. Because the alternative, we just spoke about in Matthew 18, 14, is perishing. That's the alternative of leaving sin undealt with. When a brother is astray, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be outside the church, does it? When they're astray in heart. When they've gone astray in their heart, they've separated themselves from the truth of God's word. And they say, well, that's not really for me because I'm the exception to the rule here. I'm going to live in this sin and it will eventually destroy. It will. It will. God wants us to restore. Considering the effects of sin, it's incredibly unloving then for us not to reveal the sin. If you genuinely love somebody, you're going to tell them what you see wrong in their life, particularly if it ends badly, particularly if it ends up where it's going to wound them or where it's going to cause destruction in their lives. Wouldn't you do that? Of course, you should do that. If you're unwilling to do that, then you know what? That's incredibly unloving. Many, many people, when it comes to this specific issue, We'll twist the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Don't you dare ever bring up anything about me because you're not God. Okay, that's true. I'm not God. Thank you for reminding me about that. However, there's a process that he tells us to follow. And when, when you and I have a problem and there's sin in the middle of us, we need to deal with that sin. We can't twist the words of God. We can't twist the words of Jesus and say, no, don't, don't, don't address me on this 
because you have no authority. I don't have any authority, but the Word of God does. And I'm following the process because I know that it's going to be incredibly um, destructive in your life and incredibly destructive in my life, and I will take the first step and deal with it because it's that important. We must be willing to obey the Word of God uh, particularly as it relates to, to, to sin, as it will tear the church apart. Um, so as we move into this, this process, so I've divided verses 15 through 20 into two sections. First, we have the process of dealing with sin, and then we have the authority by which we deal with sin. We have the process and then the, the authority by which we deal with the, with the sin at hand. And so look with me at verse 15 there, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, then you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, then take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. The first thing that we need to notice regarding the process of dealing with sin is uh, it, of revealing a fault is the one in which we are to address. This is the first thing. This is not a process for unbelievers. This is not a process that we walk into our office and say, hey man, <laughs> you did something wrong to me and if they're not a believer and then you're like, I, I have addressed it now, I'm going to take two or three other people with me. That, that's ineffective. It means nothing to them because they're not in the body of Christ. He's speaking about a brother. He's talking about a fellow Christian, not the unbeliever. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, we don't mention sin to the unbeliever. Of course we do. Of course we bring that topic up. Of course we address things that we see, but, but not in the same process. This isn't a process for the world. This is called church discipline. This is called church discipline. And what I want you to notice about church discipline, and it's not the church doing the disciplining initially, is it? Because church discipline doesn't just fall on the pastor's lap, on the elder's laps, but church discipline happens amongst the body first. That's how it was designed. I love that God would want to keep our sin as quiet as possible. That he wouldn't want to air it out in front of everybody because he loves us and he, he, he's protecting us. But at the same token, should you decide not to follow the process, should you decide not to um, repent then he will air that. The Bible says, be for sure. Your sin will find you out. Be for sure. You can't sit and act like stuff isn't happening if you're doing that. Before long, God will reveal those things. You ever had anybody come up to you with a word of knowledge before? You're like, whoa, what else do you know about me? <laughs> Please don't say anything more. God will reveal it, man. He will deal with it. He will deal with it big time. He, want, he wants to make sure that you and I are in that constant state of fellowship with him. Jesus says if, if a brother, if a brother sins, that means, that word literally means to miss the mark. If he's somehow, in some way, shape, or form, living contrary to the word of God, if he's done something against you that is against what the word says, then, then that's sin. That's what he's talking about. In that kind of environment, we're to deal with that. We're to deal with that. He tells us that if, if he sins against you, 
That, that phrase there against you is speaking directly, yes, but it also is insinuating indirect sin. What do I mean? Well, direct sin would be if somebody comes to you and they, and they just, I don't know, they're, they're, they mistreat you to your face. They say something really, really rude to you or they degrade you or they, they, they steal from you or whatever the case might be, whatever sin it might be, that's direct sin against you and you have knowledge of that and you get that. But there is indirect sin. For example, you have somebody who has a Calvary Chapel sticker on the back of their car and they're, they drive like crazy and, you know, there, people are calling up to the church going, hey, you know somebody that's got a black Audi? You know, that guy is crazy. Man, he's cutting people off and all this stuff. You know, he, this guy's a lunatic. I'm never coming to your church because that guy is, you know, he has no respect for anybody and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe you're in your office and you're passing out invite cards one day and the next day you're, you're that blankety blank, blank, blank. You know, you're cussing up a storm and you're you know, and you're, you're ruthless and you're unscrupulous and you're, you're dishonest and all those kinds of things. And you're like, hey, come to Calvary Chapel. You know, that's indirect sin against you. And when God reveals that sin to you, he then passed the baton to you. Isn't that nice? He said, hey, now that you have the knowledge of sin, I want you to deal with it. That's indirect sin. That's what he's talking about. You deal with it. You, you address it when it's against you, whether it be direct or indirect. How are we to deal with it then? He says, go and tell him his fault. Literally, go and reprove or rebuke your brother. That's the first step that we're to take, that, we're, that when a brother or sister sins against you, you're to go to them, not to everybody else in the church. You go to them personally and show them your fault. You're not supposed to act like it didn't happen. You're not supposed to act like you don't have any knowledge or that you didn't see what happened. You're not supposed to go gossip about it. You're, you're, supposed to, you're not supposed to run to the church leadership about it immediately and go tell them, this is what happened and I want you to deal with it. No, no, he says, I want you, personally, to go deal with it yourself. That's the responsibility that God puts upon every one of us. The accountability, listen, there, there's two sides to this. We all have that responsibility that you and I would, would, would deal with whatever we have knowledge of, right? Secondly, but it also, um, we have that re responsibility, but then we also, I, man, I totally lost my train of thought now. See what you guys make me do? It was right there. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't in my notes. That's why. The Lord didn't want me to say what I was going to say, but, but here's the thing is you're supposed to go deal with it personally. Church discipline is to be administered to not just by the pastors and the leaders of a church, but by every person in the entire body. Everyone is called uh, to reveal a fault if, you, if, you, if that's made known to you. And the way you do it has a lot to do with the effect of uh, how effective you'll be. Now, I love Proverbs. There's so much wisdom in there. And um, in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, it, it kind of tells us how we should deal with something. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. When we come to approach somebody softly, there's something about that that softens the other person. But when we come at someone charging, man, you're going to get a charge back. So come humbly is what, what really that kind of is talking about. You know, be humble in your response. The spirit in which we reveal a fault is crucial. We aren't trying to get back at our sinning brother or sister 
if we're not trying to get some kind of retribution or revenge, we're trying to restore. So we should come in that kind of spirit. Paul tells us what that looks like. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of harshness. No, in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Our heart should be to win our brother over, to restore them. We need to do this with a spirit of gentleness. Listen, if you show up at your brother's door, you know, all peacocked out, veins sticking out of your neck, beat red face, you're like, hey, man, I want to talk to you about something, and you're all jacked up, guess what you've just done? You've raised the bar. You know what's going to happen. All of a sudden, their peacock feathers are going to flap out, and you guys are going to have a war. That's not what we're supposed to do. That would be to approach the subject wrong. And I would say to you that until you have self-control in this area of whatever that brother or sister's done to you, that you don't address that until you have yourself under control, until you've submitted yourself to the Lord. Because if you don't do that, the Satan will win that battle, I promise you. You need to come humbly to your brother. You need to allow... God to come in and live through you in that moment as you go to speak to your brother. Again, it's a gift of the Spirit, man. We have to die to ourselves to do that. It's no longer about, man, I can't believe that they did that to me. It's more so about, man, Lord, help them to see it so they can be made right because it's breaking their fellowship, not just with me, but with you. Sin separates. Sin separates and God wants us um, to, to deal with it. Now, it tells us that if a brother, if we come in that way, you know, Jesus goes on to tell us, maybe you'll gain your brother. Perhaps you'll gain your brother. When you go to address him, you know, maybe you'll gain him. Maybe you'll gain him back. Literally, to gain means to, to make profitable. Maybe you'll make him profitable again. You see, sin causes us to be unprofitable. Sin causes us to be devalued. It causes us to be unusable. That's why we're supposed to deal with it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talking to Timothy, tells him in verse 20 and 21, Now, in a great house there are only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, sin... He will be a vessel for honorable use. Set aside as holy, useful, as the master of the house, ready for every good work. The way that we cleanse ourselves for honorable use is by repentance. That's how we do it. That's why we repent. That's why it's such a big deal that you and I are, are you know, we didn't just repent at salvation, but we're repenting as we uh, live our lives probably daily, my guess, that we would ask God to forgive us for the sins, not just confessing it, but turning away from whatever those sins are. It's important that we do that because if not, we're unusable, we're unprofitable. And God will allow us to stay in that state if we choose to. If you've come to Christ, then your penalty for sin is dealt with. There's no more wrath for you. But on the practical side of your sin, 
you've broken fellowship with God. You've broken fellowship with God. You've disrupted your relationship with God. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that I cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and, our God, and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Sin separates. That's why we must be all about repentance, staying in the fellowship with God and our brothers and sisters so that we can be profitable and usable. It's pretty simple, man. That's why Jesus came. So we could be in that right relationship with God continually, not just as it relates to eternity, but practically every day that we would be in fellowship with him. So what happens when they don't receive your, your word? You go to them. If, if they don't receive it, what do we do? Well, Jesus says you take a club out and you beat that sin right out of them, right? No. It's not what he said. He said you take one or two with, more with you to address the issue. The point isn't so that you can team up on the person and beat them up, but the point is to establish evidence of sin. That's what he said. That you would establish that evidence, that you would bring two or three more to establish the the, 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 the issue at hand. Again, this is an Old Testament process whereby two or three witnesses were needed to accuse or to establish a fact. When Christians bring two or three to reveal a fault, what they're doing is establishing to both parties that sin has truly been committed. They're bringing other people into the, into the realm of that. Now, let me just say that some people have incredibly thin skin. And well, so-and-so looked at me wrong, and I think that they have sinned greatly against me. And I think that you should deal with it, Pastor. I don't like the way they looked at me. You know, I think that I think having perspective in these moments when there's offense is important. Because the Bible also tells us to overlook an offense, doesn't it? Not sin. Not sin, but there's a time to overlook these little irritants that we have, Right? There's a time to overlook these things that, that aren't necessarily, um, you know, malicious, like sin is malicious, but there's a time to do that, but there's a time to address it, and sometimes by bringing other people in, it brings some perspective to the matter. You know, I don't really see that there's a problem here. I think maybe you just need to toughen up a little bit and deal with it because you got your feathers ruffled because they came and talked to you about something that um, you didn't like, so that's not sin. You know, if addressing somebody on a biblical matter is not sinful. The attitude can be, and the way that we come across can be. You know, me and my brother were having a great discussion about this theological position in man, and it got, all of a sudden got, um, you know, we, we were intense. We were passionate about what we were speaking about. That's not sin. What becomes sinful is when you become, uh, you know, when, when, when anger takes over. That's when sin happens. To be zealous for the Lord isn't necessarily meant to be sinful, but you see what I'm saying? To bring perspective. And, and so if a brother has sinned against you and you bring another uh, one or two others with you to, sh to establish the fact that it is actually sin that has happened. Um, and if they're unwilling to repent then, at that point, you go to step three. And it's a sad day when two or three brothers show up at your door and you're unwilling to repent. It's a sad day. It speaks of the, really, the attitude of your heart. It speaks about what's going on inside there. And the Lord is knocking at the door patiently saying, hey, listen to me. 
Repent. Turn away from that. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. But I will, you know, I will resist the proud. Don't be prideful in this situation. Humble yourself. If they're not willing to restore, if there's truly an issue, when two or three um, show up at the door, then you take the third step and you bring them to the church. You bring them to the leadership of the church and you, and you ask the leadership to step in. This is step three. There's two steps before that. You know, and, and, and God is saying, I don't want this to get public. Even though Jesus died as a spectacle publicly for you, God is trying to, 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 to help you deal with your sin privately. What the, the grace of God, the mercy of God to do that. He is so good to us, man. If we're not willing to, to repent and, and, and then we bring it to the local church and it's sort of like the last ditch effort, man, to get this brother or sister to see where they're at, generally speaking, when it gets to that level, man, it's pretty serious. You know, there, there's definitely a hardness of heart. And maybe the person's already gone, you know. Mo- it, they want to deal with it. I don't want to hear it, man. I'm gone. And they just take off. Don't run from your sin. Don't run from your sin because guess what? You're running from God. You don't want to run from God. You don't want to run from the Lord. You want to deal with it. This shows us how tirelessly God is working at getting us to repent chance after chance after chance because he loves us. He wants us to be profitable and usable. When you bring somebody before the church and the, and the leadership have met with that person, if they're not willing to repent, you know, the Bible says, then we're supposed to take the final step, which is to set them outside the fellowship and treat them like an, a Gentile or a tax collector. What does that mean? To treat them like an unbeliever. Actually, even differently than an unbeliever. You know, to, you can't have fellowship with somebody like that. They're, not, they're, they're unwilling to heed the word of God. And you can't have fellowship with somebody like that. Now, at what point do you do that? Like, at what point do each one of these steps progress? I, I, think, I think as tirelessly as God is with us, I would think that we would be pretty tireless in our process. That when, when I go to somebody personally and I'm just not getting through, and it's apparent that after meeting, after meeting, after meeting, that I've tirelessly gone to that person and tried to deal with it, that I go to the next step. It also depends on the type of sin it is, right? I mean, if it's, if it's severe and, and they're endangering themselves, then, you might, then the process might be uh, sooner than that. I don't think there's a formula as that relates to how, when we take the next step, but the Holy Spirit will tell you. But, but, but it's important that you do that. Now, this is probably, in the, in, the, in, in the modern church today, this whole process has kind of gone unnoticed, you know, like it's not in the Bible. <laughs> We're going to address this. Well, where's that at? It's, that's in Matthew 18, really? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Well, we don't do that. Well, why not? Because we don't want to offend people. Well, do you love people? If you really love people, you should probably do. Jesus is doing this because he loves us, not because he wants to embarrass us, you know. But, but this final step, man, is, is radical. And I get that. It's, it's, not, it's not something easy to do. To go to... to, to before you're, you're you know, and this isn't the state why, you know, the, you don't need to broadcast this on the internet. Don't have fellowship with Joe Blow because he did this. You know, that's not, it's talking about the local church. Like the body of believers that he's been involved with, if, or he or her, or whatever. If they're unwilling to repent, 
then you can't allow them to continue fellowship in, this, in the body. Why? Because Paul already told us a little leaven leavens a whole lump. If they're unwilling to deal with their sin, that will rub off on other people. And that's what he's saying. You set that person outside. Paul goes on to even say that you shouldn't even break bread with that person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Like, that's tough, man. It's not saying that you ignore the person, that you, they go on notice, that you don't ever deal with them ever again, that you act like they don't exist. I think I've seen this happen where people just turn their shoulders like, and they act like the person doesn't exist. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, is um, say a brother sins against you and you follow the process and they're unwilling to repent and they're just saying, I don't care. I don't care what the word of God says. You know, then you, and you set them outside the fellowship then you still have, you still are trying to witness to them. You're still trying to, hey, come on, man. You know, as you see them, as the Lord lays them on your heart or whatever. But when that brother calls up and says, hey, man, you want to have lunch? Well, I'll have lunch with you as long as you're willing to repent. You know, I'll have fellowship with, because that's a fellowship thing. I'll have fellowship with you. I will get together with you to discuss this one matter and this one matter only is really what, what it boils down to. Until you're willing to repent, you and I can't have fellowship. That's what it's talking about. And I know that's hard. You think God finds pleasure in that? I can't wait to excommunicate, you know, Tim Romero, because that guy, I'll tell you what, he's been getting on my nerves for years. I can't wait to set him outside. No. That's not God's heart. He wants us to follow this process because that's how serious he is with sin. Listen. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5. They lied. How many of you ever lied? Don't put your hands up because we would all have our hands would be up. I have. But listen. They died. God struck them down dead for a lie. That's how serious he is about dealing with sin in the church, guys. This happened in the church, in the church age. Now, granted, we have one example of that, and I'm not saying God's in the business of striking people dead in the church. What I'm saying is, is God's in the business of dealing with sin. And sometimes it gets radical. And sometimes you have, to, you, have to, you have to set somebody outside the fellowship to help them understand. Because let me tell you something, if they're truly a believer, if they are truly walking in Christ, if they truly are um, somebody that's come to Christ and and they have the Holy Spirit in them, they will never find comfort out there. They will never, they won't feel like they fit in anywhere. That's the point. Remember when Jesus said, if he finds that one that had gone astray? If he does? Because it's conditional. You set somebody outside of the church, they may, they may go deep into the world, but they'll never have peace. And you know what? That's risking it all for the sake of trying to deal with sin. And that's what he's telling us to do. Risk it all, man. That's how serious he is about it, and that's how we serious we should be about it. That is the process that we're supposed to follow. Secondly, we have the authority in which we come. And this is real quick, verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whether you bind on, what, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three are gathered in, on earth and ask anything, or on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my uh, Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there 
am I among them? Jesus is establishing the, uh, the authority by which we're to deal with sin here. He, he first begins by saying, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what does Jesus mean by this? Does this mean that we have all authority and power to bind anything and everything on earth and in heaven because he's given us that power? Absolutely not. That is completely out of context of this verse. This verse is in context of sin, is it not? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody who's dealing in sin, and what he is saying is that the authority that we have to bind and loose in heaven has been given to us already through his word. All we're doing is confirming his word. That's what he's saying. You and I don't have the power to author things. There's one author and finisher of our faith, and it's Jesus Christ. He's the author. He's the word. We confirm that. We do not bind. We confirm what is already bound. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying that you and I have that kind of authority. He's saying, you know, a rabbi back in this day would would understand um, this, this principle of loosening in, in, in heaven and on earth as a principle or an action that was uh, forbidden to or, or permitted according to God's word. It was something that they would, would weigh based on God's word. It wasn't them authoring anything. And so it's you in Jesus' day would understand this to be saying that whatever principle or action was taken um, was from above already and therefore it is bound on earth and heaven. Do you follow me on that? You're just confirming what God had already said, essentially, is what he's saying here. That's why you have the authority to bind and loosen. Not because you have the authority to author anything, but you're taking what's been authored and you're making it bound on earth and heaven. You're declaring that it's bound on earth and heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. You get that? The authority that you have is in God's word. It's not the authority. You're not, you're not an authority in and of yourself. The only authority you have is Christ in you. And the Christ in you speaks what? God's word. He speaks the word of God. He doesn't author it. Boy, would we be in trouble if we started author. If God gave us authoring, authorship, you know. Hey, go ahead and just say whatever you want to say. Boy, would this world look a lot different. He, he goes on here. He says, when two or three have come together and agreed. Now, what's the context of this? This is probably one of the most misquoted taken out of context verses that I myself have done lots. The, I get the heart of it, but this isn't a prayer meeting. This isn't a prayer meeting. This is talking about when you're dealing with sin, where two or three have gathered in my name, where you've come and you're, you're, you're standing in the authority of me, two or three of you, declaring evidence that there's a problem. When that happens, whatever you ask, will be declared. And again, the submission is not in your own authority. It's the authority of God is what he's talking about here. He's talking about where two or three are gathered before the Lord and they ask God to seal the decision that's been made following his word. I like how MacArthur explained it. He said, when the church acts in God's behalf and in accordance with his word in matters dealing with sin, he acts in their behalf by confirming and empowering their faithful decision and actions. You see what he's saying? He's saying, when you take the word of God and you apply it to a situation, God is confirming that decision because he authored it, because he's the one that did that. 
The idea is that we're operating the authority of God's word already, and therefore what we ask for and what we agree upon is his will already. Jesus goes on to say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What God isn't saying is that we alone are without the presence of God. That's not what he's saying. Can you imagine you're in your prayer closet and you're like, honey, can you come in here? I need another one because God's presence is in here. Can we get God's presence here so that I can speak to God? That's not what he's talking about. The idea is that we're establishing a witness before the judge of all nations, by the way. That's the context. That we're establishing an evidence before the judge of all nations where two or three are gathered. It's a judicial concept that's essentially keeping everybody in the process accountable before the Lord. That's what it's talking about. The context in which Jesus is referring, again, is not the, again, in the assembly of God for the sake of worship, but in the assembly of two or three for the sake of dealing with sin. You have God's presence always, Christian. You don't have to get, uh, you know, you don't get more of God's presence because you're around. You have his presence. You get his presence. He's always in our midst. And that should frighten you sometimes. He's always in your midst. He's everywhere. He always is. No matter where you are, no matter how much you think you're hiding, no matter what dark place you're in, he's there. David told us that. Jesus has given us a specific process to follow when a fellow Christian sins against us, both directly and indirectly. And although it isn't a popular in our culture today to do such a thing, we must do it. It's vital to the body being healthy. Perhaps as we are going through this this morning, something came to mind in your life. Maybe someone sinned against you and you haven't dealt with it. Jesus is telling you today to deal with it. He says, man, I've given you a process to follow. Now follow the process. What Jesus is asking of us is to, to risk it all. Risk the relationship, whatever it might be, to risk it all for the sake of that brother and sister. To step outside of your comfort zone to address a sin issue that you know about that maybe you've never done anything about. It's not easy, and God knows that. And so in the next few minutes, we're going to ask God to just flood our hearts with strength, with his heart, with love, that we might follow the process exactly the way that he would have us to do it. That we would be willing to risk our popularity, our relationships, our comfort, and everything else for the sake of seeing a brother or sister restored. I want to pray with you to that end this morning that we would ask God to help us be faithful to the process. Because Jesus didn't put the process in place just because. He put it in place because it is necessary in the body of Christ. And whatever he thinks is necessary, I think is necessary, and you should think is necessary. Listen, there are many, many people in the world that have gone so far away from what God's word says that when you actually follow the process, you look crazy. That's culturally where we are. That's the spiritual temperature of our world today. That you look 
like radical. <laughs> I'm just following the Bible. I'm just taking the Bible literally and living it out in my life. And by the way, it's for love's sake. It's not for the benefit of me. It's for the benefit of the one who, who, is, who is in sin, who's broken fellowship with God, and who God wants to uh, restore in the right relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. And for these principles that you've put in place. Lord, that we might be faithful with them, Lord. God, these, these things this morning, as we've just read, are, are not just meant for us to be hearers of the word, but we're meant to be doers. The value that you have upon the life of one of your believers is so great, Lord, that you're telling us to risk it all, to go after that one with the heart and desire for them to be restored. Some of us in this room today, Lord, are the sinning brother or sister. Some of us in this room today have been sinned against. Some of us have gone through this process many times, and although it's not comfortable, we've seen God work. And some of us have never even approached the subject, never even thought that they would be in a position where they might be called to do such a thing. And yet this is your word to us. God, we're your kids, and we want to be faithful and obedient to, your, to, to what you would have us do here. And so we ask you this morning, God, that you would give us strength to get beyond ourselves, that we would die to ourselves and we would be obedient to your word. <laughs> that as we move forward, God, in our relationship with you, that we would be more obedient to your word and this being one of those tests. If you've put something on somebody's heart this morning, Lord, would you help them, give them strength to deal with it? <clears throat> Your word tells us that if we're a sinning brother, and maybe we have that conviction in our heart. <clears throat> There's a process for that as well. And we're to leave the altar and go make it right. And so, Lord, would you just help us this morning to do whatever it is that your spirit is leading us to do? We just pray for your work in our lives, Lord, <clears throat> that we would respond to, uh, to what you've said to us this morning. We thank you, Father. We love you, and we ask that you would just go before us now, and as we close in this song, that you would um, just give us strength, Lord, as we reach out and we receive from you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.